If abortion doesn't kill a human being, no justification is necessary. If, however, abortion does kill an innocent human being, no justification is sufficient. Throughout history, whenever great injustices existed, youth movements have risen up to combat and end those injustices. You have organizations out there like the Center for Bioethical Reform. The Center for Bioethical Reform. Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. Organizations like the Center for Bioethical Reform to receive public funds when they then use to attack a woman's right to choose. Abortion kills all kinds of people, so then all kinds of people can join the pro-life movement to save these babies. I was talking to a young man on the streets of Toronto. I spoke with a woman named Lucy about abortion. Today we were doing choice chain in downtown Regina. By the end of the conversation, she was completely pro-life. He then walked away 100% pro-life. Completely pro-life. We should remember that each of those babies that die every day in Canada not only have the right to life that's being violated, they also have the right to artifacts. Hi folks, welcome to the Pro-Life Guys podcast. My name is Cam, I am stepping in for Peter as the host of the show and filling my spot is a good friend of mine, Blaze Elaine. How are you doing, Blaze? I'm doing great, Cam. Good stuff. So we at the Pro-Life Guys podcast, we are two guys, two guys still today, but but one of the one of the new guys we've we featured on the show a few times before. We're two guys who are passionate about ending the killing of preborn children in Canada and around the world. And this is a podcast dedicated to giving you the tools that you need to change minds and save lives. And Blaze, you are the, the Eastern Outreach Director. You are the East to my West. I am the Western Outreach Director <laughs> for CCBR. I don't know if that's weird, but... Um... No, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We are on today to discuss a debate that happened last night at, at the time of recording between our colleague, Micah Rosendahl, and Dr. Fraser Fellows. We're going to talk about this debate, a few themes that, that stuck out to us, and how we can address some of these um, questions that might actually come up on a street, um, street corner, a doorstep. It's unlikely, I would assume, that many of you are going to be featured in a debate like the one that just um, played out, but I hope many of you are going to feature um, in conversations with your friends, family members, coworkers. And so I think it's important that we kind of break down a lot of what was covered in the debate and how you can take lessons from that to benefit the conversations that you're having with the people around you. But to kick it off, so debates are a little bit different than normal conversations. Blaze, I, have you ever been part of a formal debate like the one that happened last night or, or no? I've been part part of formal debates in high school, and and it was an abortion debate and defending the pro life position for the first time. That was part of what convicted me about the issue, doing the research and that sort of thing. But it's been a long time since I've been a part of a formal debate. Gotcha. Yeah, because every debate is different. I think of the the one time I've done a formal debate, it was organized by a free speech um, coalition here in Calgary. Um, they lined up two pro-lifers and two abortion supporters, and I, I was going to be the main one doing the pro-life bit. I gave my my opening remarks, and the person who followed me said, I don't actually want to talk about abortion. I just want to talk about transgender rights, and used their 15 minutes to talk about transgender rights. And the rest of it um, became, if there wasn't a question mark on a comment from the audience, I wasn't able to respond. And oh, wow. the audience found this out really quickly. And so they would just say all sorts of things to me. And I just had to sit there and, and pretend to look pretty, um, trying to respond when I could and get pro-lifers. And so everyone is a little bit different. 
the debate that we're talking about today, obviously, like I mentioned, between Micah Rosenall, who's a speaker for CCBR, Dr. Fraser Fellows, who is a retired obstetrician and gynecologist in the London, Ontario region. He spent a lot of time as a professor at local universities and is a late-term abortion provider within that area. And this, this debate was hosted by three groups, all based at the University of York, one being the pro-life group, which was Youth Protecting Youth, one being the Students for Free Speech, and one being the Health and Medical Law Society, all at York. I want to give them a huge shout out um, as we kick off here. I, I think they did a great job putting on the debate. There's over 250 people or so that I saw um, tune in at any given time, um, which I think is really, really impressive that there are still people who are willing to tune into a Zoom meeting, let alone a Zoom meeting that's a debate about abortion. Yeah, um, and, and, and that was just live, right? It's recorded, it'll be up, so even more people will be able to watch it afterwards. But I was impressed by the turnout. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so let's dive into a couple of the themes that, that really stood out during the debate, Blaze. You and I just chatted before we started recording here about the role that language had during the debate. And I, I want to get your take, because I think you said a really interesting thing. For those of you who haven't seen the debate, we'll, we'll put the debate link in our show notes. But Micah started off with a bit of a what I thought was an unconventional starting. Do you want to share a little bit about how she started and how that kind of became a, a central focus throughout the debate place. Yeah, so she started by um, sharing about her experience learning the English language. It wasn't her first language. And um, how while she was trying to learn the language, um, one of the things that was really helpful to her was uh, being able to ask questions like, what is it, right? And she used that story um, to center uh, her case for life uh, because that's the central question of the abortion debate, right? What is it? Like, what is a human fetus, right? I is this a human being or not? That's central to determining the morality of abortion. So, uh, you know, I, I, I uh, heard that at the beginning. And I was like, oh, that's sort of an interesting story to tell about, you know, how it's really important to get to the essence of the question. But as the debate went on, I realized how prescient that was because there was this theme of language all the way throughout the debate, right? Um, Dr. Fellows um, accused Micah of using inflammatory language by using the word killing. And Micah clarifies and says she's trying to use accurate language that, um, you know, our call is to end the killing. It's a call for peace, right? But we have to be accurate. One extreme is inflammatory language. The other extreme is euphemism. And repeatedly throughout the debate, in different times, in different ways, Micah pressed Dr. Fellows on uh, when life begins and on the humanity of a preborn child. And he would refer to the child as an intrauterine pregnancy. Uh, he, 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 he used the term pre-human, which I've, I've never heard that word before. Like, unless we're talking about like evolution or something like that. Like I've never heard a phrase pre-human before. Um, you know, he would use these, these euphemisms to avoid calling the child human, yet he would contradict himself in his own language. You know, he said, well, uh, uh, you know, we don't have a living human being until birth, until a live birth, because he says a stillbirth, for example, is a fetal death. And it's like, hold on a second. How can you have a death if like a fetal death if the fetus wasn't already alive? Right. Or he used the term uh, killing uh, once by accident 
even though he had criticized Micah for using the same term. So all the way throughout, I just felt this theme of, of language and trying to get to that essence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you made that last point. That, that stood out to me as, as something quite comical, actually. He, he had attacked Micah a few times on, yeah, the, the inflammatory language and how you're talking about killing an innocent human and, and stuff like this. And then a question that was posed to Micah was about fetal pain. This idea of what does it matter if the child can't feel pain? And Micah referenced a study that had shown that um, that possibly after 12 weeks, but certainly after around 18 weeks, um, that, that human fetus may very well feel pain. And she described an abortion procedure for how later term abortions are performed by ripping the child apart piece by piece and then crushing her skull as they're removed from, from the uterus. And Dr. Fraser Fellows, who has performed numerous late term abortions, corrected her and, and like you said, said, no, it's actually the joxin that kills the child. And, and then it's a stillbirth delivery and, and just contradicting the language of killing is very, very important. And this actually came up, um, on, on the street, um, this past weekend, um, I, I took a team up to Edmonton to do some social distance door knocking. And I, I had a conversation with a, a university student who was making a very similar point about the differences between murder and killing and unintentional death and that sort of thing and how language does matter in this entire thing. And, and that even traces back to that opening quote um, that I mentioned there, Blaze, of if abortion doesn't kill an innocent human, then no justification is necessary. And, and that's obviously the point that Micah was trying to drive home the whole time, right? Focusing on the humanity of the preborn. But that wasn't really what, what Dr. Fraser was trying to focus on at all, was it? What, what, what did you kind of take away as his main thrusts, I suppose? Yeah, so um, she kept pressing that question because it is the central question, right? What is the preborn? Because if the preborn isn't human, then you don't really need a justification for abortion. But if the preborn is human, then no justification is adequate. And you could tell that when she pressed and pressed, he would he would pivot away. Now, before I get to what he pivots to, one of the other language things um, around the humanity of, of when life begins, uh, he kept focusing on this term um, live birth, right? Which is uh, a clinical term in an OBGYN context, right? To distinguish a live birth from a stillbirth. But there was a language issue there where he was misapplying a clinical term from an OBGYN context to embryology, to mean something that it doesn't mean, right? So uh, live birth just means being born alive. It doesn't mean that you're not alive until you're born. Um, So he was making that mistake with language of misapplying a technical term in one field to another field. Um, but when pressed, eventually he would pivot away. Um, you know, y- you could tell with the Freudian slips, like the, uh, the, like using the word kill later at the end of the debate, um, he said it was a mistake to use that term, but it came out naturally, right? Like I think deep down he knows and the language was awkward. So he would pivot away. What he would pivot away to, um, is birth, but in particular he would pivot away to what happens, what he believes happens when abortion is illegal. So when, when getting uncomfortable on the science of when life begins, he would say, yes, but look at these, look at the, at the, at the real and genuine difficult circumstances that many women face when they turn to abortion or look at countries like Romania and what happened there when abortion was illegal. He would pivot back to difficult circumstances and uh, oppressive regimes that 
um, had banned abortion as as the as the justification rather than addressing the science of when life begins head on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found that so interesting. And we'll dive into that whole Romania thing because it's something that he talked about several times. And it's something actually that Peter and I talked about recently in our episode about the Freakonomics episode where, where it's laid out again or, or talked about um, abortion being um, made illegal in Romania and all the other stuff that went around that. I, I did agree that um, he he focused so much on, on the very real hardship that, that mothers are faced with. And, and at the beginning, in, in some of his opening remarks, he talked about the prevalence and the, the mind-boggling frequency of the atrocity of sexual assault and how around the world, around one in three women are victims of sexual assault and, and just staggering numbers, which, Blaze, you and I, we've done a tremendous amount of pro-life outreach. We've spoken to people who are victims of sexual assault. We work with people who are victims of sexual assault. We know this is very much a, a huge factor. But like you said, it kind of kept coming back to this of the terrible circumstances that mothers are faced with. And another thing that I, I found that he kept coming back to time and again was mothers are going to get abortions anyways. Whether they're drinking bleach or turpentine or whatever, I'd rather perform a quote-unquote safe and legal abortion in my facility rather than um, have somebody come into an emergency room with knitting needles um, stabbing into their uterus trying to kill the child. And I think that that's, from my experience at least, a, a common theme that I've seen among many who perform abortions. I remember the the Stephanie Gray debate with Dr. Uh, Malcolm Potts. I remember reading countless um, excerpts from conversations with Dr. Um, Henry Morgenthaler even and how the horrific um, cases of self-performed abortions kind of motivated some of these um, OBGYNs to become abortion providers. I, I think that that's a, a common theme and we'll touch on that as well. But maybe let's dive into that that theme of maternal mortality, something that came up numerous times um, in in the debate. I know that you've got some numbers. I know that he brought out the numbers around um, Romania, and I think that he referenced a, a few others that may have been um, brought from Africa or other kind of developing nations. This idea of maternal mortality, like, is there any merit from the research that you've done? What what kind of information background should we have on the idea of maternal mortality? Right. Yeah. So I think it's important to share some information here because this is one thing that for time and with uh, questions that were cut off, uh, Micah mentioned in her blog post this morning about the debate um, that she didn't have a chance to fully address. She, she threw something quick in her closing statement, but the format of the debate didn't allow for her to go into more detail. Um, so... I find that one of the best summaries I found is from chapter nine of, of Christopher Kayser's The Ethics of Abortion. He's a moral philosopher, but he dives into this question in that chapter, and he's pulling heavily from Dr. Byron Calhoun's article, The Maternal Mortality Myth in the Context of Legalized Abortion. And the main takeaway is that um, if you want to look at this question of maternal mortality, you have to be able to make apples to apples comparisons. You have to look at what happens when only one variable changes, right? Like when you're looking at Romania, uh, Romania under an oppressive communist regime, you know, there's more than one thing going on there than the legal status of abortion, right? Or uh, Micah made, I think it was uh, towards her closing statement, she made the point of um, the time she spent in developing countries in Africa. And uh, you know, there was more than one thing going on that um, uh, that led to a high maternal mortality. Um, so 
um, one of the points that uh, Dr. Calhoun and Christopher Kayser make is there are case studies we can look at to see what happens when one variable actually changes. Um, you know, first, if we look to the United States in the years before Roe v. Wade, we can see um, deaths from abortion decreased dramatically through the 20th century before it's legalized. So the National Center for Health Statistics in the states reported um, 1,231 abortion deaths in 1942. But by 1972, a year before Roe v. Wade, only 120, right? So there's this big trend because it's medical advances um, that were making a difference, not the legal status of abortion. And actually, in Roe v. Wade, uh, the, uh, the, the safety was one of the arguments um, being used. It was a key argument that abortion prohibitions were outdated because the laws were meant to protect women because abortion was dangerous. But since abortion wasn't dangerous anymore, they said, the legal prohibition was no longer needed. So abortion advocates were actually arguing that um, abortion was no longer dangerous. Um, but we can look at countries like Chile, Poland, Guyana, and Ireland, right? So in Chile, uh, they went from uh, uh, legalizing abortion in 1931 uh, to then banning virtually all abortions in 1989. Um, in Poland, abortion was legal under communism and then almost entirely banned in 1989 with the Solidarity Revolution. In Guyana, it went the other way, where abortion was criminalized up until 1995 when it was legalized. And in Ireland, uh, abortion was entirely illegal until the 2018 referendum. And when you look at all of these countries, um, there is no connection between a change in the legal status of abortion and the maternal mortality rate. In fact, sometimes the, the maternal mortality rate goes in the opposite direction that you would expect it would if, 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 the, if the law was reducing maternal mortality. What, uh, what you find is that the factors that make the biggest difference in lowering maternal mortality are clean water, increasing female educational achievement, sy systematic prenatal care, complementary nutrition programs for children and pregnant women, not the legal status of abortion. Um, I was looking this up just last week because I was running a webinar on this, and you look at the most recent maternal mortality data worldwide, say from 2017. So this is when abortion is still illegal in Ireland. And uh, they track the number of maternal deaths per live births. You look at Canada, uh, sorry, it's the number of maternal deaths per 100,000 live births. So in Canada, it's t we're at 10. In the United States, we're at 19. Two countries where abortions widely available. In Ireland, in 2017, it was five. In Poland, it was two. Right? So when you make apples to apples comparison between uh, countries with, um, that are more similar to each other, we can see that it's the quality of maternal health care that reduces maternal deaths, not the legal status of abortion. Mm -hmm. I, I, I find it so interesting when this argument um, about Romania comes up on college campuses because I feel like it should be a a trial is on communism, not on pro-life legislation, that um, you look at all, all of the craziness that happened in that country. And it seems like all these university students want to experiment with um, communism again and want to blame all of the bad stuff on the pro-life laws and whatnot. But that's probably another episode altogether. Um, right. I, I and, do find and, that. Yeah. And, and, you know, when, when you look at Ireland compared to other neighboring countries like Scotland, England and Wales, when abortion was 
illegal in Ireland, they had a lower maternal mortality rate than their neighboring countries, right? So rather than picking some communist regime and comparing it to a developed country, you know, you pick different countries in the British Isles and you see that the legal status of abortion doesn't, isn't what makes the difference. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, and as we'll get into as, as we keep talking, and, and we'll talk about a few more themes that, that stood out to us in the debate, and then we'll kind of transition into, okay, let's talk about a few of these and how we'd respond to them on the street. Another theme that, that I've, I found really came out, obviously, he talked um, frequently about, um, like we said, sexual assault, and, and he, he brought up the Romanian street children, and, and these, there are people that we're not caring for, and, and bringing up time and time again, this idea of, you know, we, we've got people that we can't care for. And so the solution is abortion. The solution, he talked several times about contraceptives as well. And I, I find the contraceptive argument has been tested and tried, especially in North America, uh, when you consider the fact that it's really, really easy to get access to contraception. Um, if you don't know where to find it, um, I'm sure people at your local university could help you find um, free access somewhere. Um, that, that this birth control experiment really hasn't worked out. That's something that we can dive into as well. Blaze, was there anything else that we should talk about as really kind of themes that, that stood out to you during during the debate um, that so we talked about language, we've talked about maternal mortality, we've talked about the importance of focusing the conversation on the humanity. What else stood out, if, if anything else? Yeah, so uh, just kind of on, on the note of what you just said about a lot of the other things that Dr. Fellows brought up, you know, he was appealing to empathy and compassion. And Micah's response was common ground in recognizing the real uh, problems and the need for empathy and compassion. But getting back to that, what is it question? And, and, and for me, one of the things that stood out is um, there was a question that was asked about, um, it, so it was a different question, but I think it illustrates this point. The question was, um, you know, what about a, a, a woman's right to self-determination? Uh, should it be limited? And um, Micah brought it back to the question of, well, what is abortion? We have to, we, we have, we have to look at, what is the choice? Um, and in particular, is it just about self or is there an other? Because self-determination should be limited when we're talking about doing things that harm other people. It's no longer just about ourselves. So with all these, these real um, difficult circumstances that Dr. Fellows brought up, uh, sexual violence, Romanian street children, the, the, the difficult circumstances that any woman may face in a pregnancy, um, by getting to that heart of what is it, Micah was bringing the other to the forefront. That yes, we need compassion and empathy, but how many human beings are there involved in a pregnancy? How many people do we need to have compassion and empathy for? Because it, it isn't the compassionate. There's another question, is abortion humane? And Dr. Fellows responded to that saying, I do think it is humane for the woman. And he emphasized that himself. He recognized that in his answer. And Micah said, well, you know, I, I, sure I could see that, but how is it humane for the child, right? That difference mm -hmm. between self and other. Yes, we need empathy, but we have to be able to answer is there another human being involved before we can figure out how many people do we need to have empathy for in these difficult circumstances? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I think that was a great point. I think that Micah handled that really, really well. And I think that she handled one of the follow-up questions to that really well was, um, too, in that, so she was kind of asked a question, how can you place a preborn child above the mother? How, how can you place one human above the other human? I think that Micah did a great job of showing that this isn't a hierarchy of people but rather a hierarchy of rights. It's not a matter of we're placing this preborn child as more important, more valuable, more worth our protection and rights than the mother, but rather demonstrating that this is a hierarchy of rights, the right to life, the right to not be killed as an innocent human being, rather than the right to self-determination when there's another involved. This isn't because we like preborn children more than we like born people, but rather comparing any two human beings when there's a conflict of rights, we have to go to more fundamental rights and not who we like better. It's not a popularity contest, but rather a very, very basic concept of human rights and what is more fundamental, the right to not be killed as an innocent human being or the right to be able to do whatever we want with our bodies whenever we want to, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So let's start pivoting a little bit then, Blaze. Let, let's talk... Um, when you think of the differences between a formal debate like what Micah and, and Fraser Fellows were doing and the conversations that you and I and hopefully the people tuning into this program are having on, um, on street corners and on doorsteps and with their friends and family, what, do you, what stands out to you as the major differences that exist between a formal debate? Why should somebody not necessarily take Micah's answers verbatim and start integrating them into their conversation? What changes when you're having a more one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody? Right. So, you know, even in this debate, which um, which was relatively informal for a formal debate, like it was a lot of questions, uh, not like a kind of formal rebuttal kind of thing. But it's still it still is different than a conversation, because um, the, the thing that stuck out to me is um, there is less dialogue. They're trading statements. Right. So um, even when they have it back and forth, it was often a couple minutes for Micah, a couple minutes for Dr. Fellows, right? So in that kind of context, um, you're, you're picking one or two points that you think are the most salient and kind of delivering a mini speech and then responding to someone else's mini speech. And, and um, you've got the invisible audience here or somewhat visible with Zoom, but you've got the, you know, hundreds of people who are listening in on the conversation. So you're not just having a dialogue a back and forth conversation with one person, you're trading statements with one person in front of an audience. So, um, you know, I, I, was, uh, I was frustrated in a way, in the way that Dr. Fellows, when, um, when you could tell he was getting stuck around the science when life begins, he would just totally pivot away and then it would be a couple minutes later before you can go back. Whereas when you're in a conversation with somebody one-on-one, -on -one, you don't have the invisible audience, you don't have the formality, um, you, know, you can ask simple questions, you can ask clarifying questions, you can, you can go one step at a time, see how somebody responds and you're working with them as a conversation partner, but you're working through things you know, bit by bit rather than uh, you know, delivering a longer statement and then waiting to hear their longer statement and then deciding what you have time to respond to, right? Like that's, that's the nature of a debate and I mm -hmm. think it was good for what it was, but that's, that's what stood out to me is what's really different when you're in one-on-one uh, -on -one dialogue with someone. Mm -hmm. One thing that I'll just tack onto that as well, I found that because that, that invisible audience, like you, like you mentioned, I found that many of both Dr. Fellows's and Micah's um, kind of points 
weren't necessarily, like you said, hitting them directly, but rather trying to plant further seeds within the audience of really trying to demonstrate the compassion that we actually have um, those holding the pro-life worldview, trying to demonstrate the empathy, trying to demonstrate all these different facts. And so I found that, that and, and naturally so, Micah was trying to weave in a lot of themes that maybe she couldn't cover in her initial um, kind of opening remarks, as it were. If she was just giving a straight presentation, she might have spoken for half an hour, 45 minutes, when she's given eight minutes as an opener. And, and this isn't a critique of how the debate was structured, but rather just something that goes along with debate that you need to weave these themes into the other kind of statements that you're making because you are trying to, in, in some ways, win people over to your side of the, the arena, as it were, in a how much information, how can I make a, the most compelling point without actually engaging any of my invisible audience? How do I plant all of these seeds that will hopefully grow up to fruition? Yeah, it's like you need to cover all the bases in a way when you have a whole bunch of different people in the audience, you might have different views. Whereas when you're in dialogue with one person, you can focus in on their specific objections and concerns and not feel like you need to, you know, use your statement to introduce some other arguments that somebody else listening might have, right? You can zero mm -hmm. in in one on one dialogue in a way that you whereas you got to cover all the bases in a debate with an audience. Yeah, cool. So let, let's dive blaze into how we would kind of appropriate some of the responses into conversations. And, and there's one theme, actually, maybe I should have said this before transitioning, but one theme that I that I, I love that you actually outlined very, very well in a different book, on a different theme, on the book that you co-authored with Jonathan about having conversations about assisted suicide and euthanasia, about testing the limit, testing the limit of, of somebody's belief. And when I think of what Fraser Fellows was saying, Dr. Fraser Fellows, no disrespect, sorry, Dr. Fraser Fellows. Um, I, I think of a bunch of questions that I would have asked to try to test the limit on what he really believes. He, um, one, of, one of those would be, he, so he mentioned, like we've talked about on several occasions, the fact that women are going to um, access abortion regardless of whether it's legal or illegal. I, I don't know what you would have thought, but I, I would have loved to press the issue. And, and if I was having a conversation with somebody on a street corner about that, and they said, you know what, I, I think abortion should be legal and safe because mothers and fathers are going to get them anyways, I might test a limit on that of what, do you, um, what would you say if mothers were going to be killing their born children anyways, if, if there was a, a spike in infanticide and those mothers were risking their own lives in an effort to kill their born children and make it look like an accident, whether they're driving their vehicles into lakes and trying to escape through a window or whether they're leaving their child in a, in a house where you've got a, a burning candle and, and the, the house goes up in flames and the child dies. Like if, if mothers are going to seek out ways to kill their born children anyways, would you look into their eyes and with compassion say to them, okay, well, fine, I guess I'll safely kill your born child. That's, that's the kind of thing that I would try to test the limit on. How far are you willing to go on people's desire and desperate drive to access abortion? I agree that there are many women who are feeling as though this is their only option. There's a lot that can be said about trying to give them better options and support them through whatever kind of crisis they're in. But that's something that kind of stood out for me on trying to press him a little bit further on how far are you going to take this? Would you take that point a little bit further? What, what do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that that's a good example of what's different in in conversation, right? You can, um, you can kind of, like, I guess, uh, 
to rephrase what I was saying earlier, it's like in a debate, you've got to cover all the bases like it's about breadth. But in conversation, you can go more in depth, right? So to test the limit by introducing the infant or trotting out the toddler and asking if his, um, if his same uh, moral justification, if he would uphold it after birth, um, uh, that, that's one way to test the limit. Also, and Micah did this a little bit, but in dialogue, you could do it more with someone. Um, uh, you know, he, he draws a limit at um, 23 weeks and six days, like uh, LMP, that's, that's where he would stop performing abortions. Like, okay, well, why not a day or two before? Like, what's different a day or two before? You know, he said it's viability. At that point, many children would survive after they're born. A day or two doesn't make a huge difference there, right? So kind of zero in on, the, on that difference. Or um, Micah did do this on the question on sex-selective abortion. He said in good conscience, mm. he could not, he would not perform or condone sex selective abortions the, the justification he gave was basically um a kind of cultural relativism like well that's what my parents have taught me and i, I believe that's wrong but like you know push that in there okay well why if 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 you think this isn't a human being at all um why could it ever be wrong and kind of zero in and test the limit there in, in dialogue too like um uh you know um you illustrated how we could try out the toddler to see if um you know, women are going to do it anyways is a justification for killing born children. You know, in dialogue, depending on the person I'm talking to, I might take some different arguments and um, let them sit with it. You know, like we could ask, um, well, if someone's going to, uh, you know, shoot up heroin anyways, should we give them a sterilized needle or not? And I don't know what their answer is on that. And I don't know what my answer is on that, frankly, right? But, you know, ask them that question, get them thinking about it. But then, okay, well, if somebody's going to commit murder anyways, like murder an adult human being, um, should we make it safe for them to do it? It could be dangerous to kill somebody else. Well, okay, no, of course not, right? Or, you know, you know what? Sexual assault is illegal. And tragically, it happens anyways. One time is far too often, but it happens uh, it, it happens. It's prevalent in our society. It's going to happen anyways. Surely we wouldn't say the answer is to make it safe to assault or kill born human beings because people are going to do it anyways and it's dangerous. But with the drug example, we might go you know, one way or another. Why? Well, it depends if there's another person involved. So the thing is, in dialogue, you can maybe, you know, see how they respond to one analogy. See if you need to use a second or if one does the trick. You could spend more time going in more depth to help somebody get and understand that, that point um, in a way that in a, in a debate you can't. So like my, my kind of takeaway is you get um, a kind of model of the pro-life argument from, uh, from Micah's debate in terms of some of the questions or analogies you could use, but how you use them is quite different in dialogue, the tactics and how you employ them are quite different than when you have an audience in a structured format. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and I think that that's obviously the art that, that we as pro-life guys are trying to convey of how to have these productive conversations, how to win people towards the pro-life movement. And obviously, as we've talked about time and again, um, and, and Blaze, as you work with interns and, and everyone that you're working with in, in the GTA there, talking about the value of questions and drawing people and, and really mining deeper and deeper in um, one, one question that I want to propose to the audience here about how to test the limit. So often, Liz, I'm sure you've, you've had this a, a thousand times at least, people will bring up these hard circumstances and 
the common route, I, I think it's fair to say, is to do the, the common ground. Yes, I acknowledge that that's a really hard situation. The analogy, trot off the toddler, ask the question. But, but ultimately, what we're doing is asking, why is it okay to kill somebody in that situation? Sometimes to test a limit, I try to turn the question around on them and just say, okay, so you've said sexual assault and you've said these other questions. Let's find common ground. Let's make sure that you understand just how much I care about victims of injustice. Are there any abortions that you don't support? Mm. And why not? Because I think that's such a telling question. I think that's something that Micah did a great job of and something that, that we can really leverage within our conversations because I, I think that it's very, very clear that abortion has to be an all or nothing. Yeah. Either abortion doesn't kill a human and it doesn't matter if you're going in for your 15th abortion. It doesn't matter if you're going in for a late-term abortion. It doesn't matter if you're going in for a sex-selective abortion or it does kill a human being and all of those things do matter. One other anecdote before I throw it back to you, Blaze, I, that I found really, really fascinating. So when I was at, uh, when I was a student at the University of Victoria and I was helping run the pro-life club there, we formed a very, very fascinating alliance with um, the, the pride club on campus, the, the gay pride club on campus, as they were called at the time. Um, and the, the president of the club made this very, very strong point saying, if ever scientists identified a quote unquote gay gene, then she anticipated that um, abortion would be used, not sex selective, but rather um, orientation selective or, or whatever it may be. And, and so she said, okay, well, if that happened, I would be against them killing freeborn children because of that. And when I thought about that, I realized that they're humans at that point. And so we found this, this really, really interesting um, kind of collaboration around this idea. And, and because we tested the limit of, would you support abortion if a quote unquote gay gene was established? Mm. And people who had that gene were being selectively killed. Would that be okay to kill people for that reason if they're not humans? And so that, that's just another way that I think that we can test the limit. But you wanted to jump back in there with another thought on, on translating, I, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Just on that, um, on, on the way that Micah did it and the difference in a conversation, you know. So with the sex selective abortion question, she was able to zero in a bit and, and got Dr. Fellows to say that, you know, he couldn't in good conscience do that and to challenge him a bit on it. Um, in a debate context, it's like, okay, a few minutes have passed. You got to move on to the next question, right? That's the format. Um, mm -hmm. in conversation, when you get that kind of foothold, that's something you can really zero in and focus on. It's like, okay, okay, okay. Why? Why? Right? Like if, if a fetus is a nothing, is a zero in the moral equation, why would it ever be wrong? Like why, what is your conscience telling you? Like it, it's not just your parents told you that it's, um, that it's, you know, wrong to discriminate against, uh, you know, uh, like it's not that your parents just told you it was wrong to discriminate on the basis of gender. You have to believe there's a human being there to be gendered in the first place, right? Like there's, there's something that your conscience is telling you that's contradicting what you said earlier and to kind of zero in on it. And um, it brings to mind uh, a testimony from Created Equal uh, a couple weeks ago that went out on social media. It was about, it, it was, uh, uh, it was a young uh, volunteer having a conversation with a post abortive women who had become pregnant with sexual assault. And it was just such a fantastic conversation, the way that um, he showed empathy and he was sensitive in 
uh, in caring about her and talking through the issue, but also communicating the truth in love because to truly love someone, you need to tell them the truth. And she was opposed to abortion in every other circumstance. Um, and sensitively, compassionately, he zeroed in on it. And there was a point at which um, she said, as they're building rapport and building trust in this conversation, she said she sought forgiveness for her abortion. And he sensitively uh, was able to bring it back to her and say, you know, like, I'm so glad that you're able uh, to do that and, and that you're okay now. Um, but, but to ask her and to challenge her and say, well, you wouldn't seek forgiveness unless you thought there was something wrong and kind of use that, that common ground that was established, uh, you, you know, by, by finding a limit where um, some abortions were immoral and others were moral, he was able to change her mind about abortion. Mm -hmm. So say with Dr. Fellows and sex selective abortion, if this was a one-on-one -on -one conversation, I'd be zeroing in on that. And I would drop a lot of other things and focus on that until we could sort of figure out why is your conscience telling you this? Whereas in the debate, it's like, you, you have to move on to the next question. So you can only mm -hmm. spend so much time on something that could be central to a one-on-one -on -one dialogue. Yeah, hundred percent. Cool. So as, as we are wrapping up here, so we're at the 40 minute mark on my, on my tracker um, for those tuning in on, on your various podcast trackers. What we've, we've gotten a lot of feedback Blaze, from our, from the, the audience and guests and whatnot that have been on that they love concrete takeaways. And so what I, what I'm thinking, um, maybe I'll do a concrete takeaway on what I would say on this, on a street corner about sexual assault. And then after that, maybe if you could do, what would you concretely and, and kind of concisely say with regards to maternal mortality? We'll wrap up from there. And so if somebody said to me, Cam, I, I think abortion should be allowed in cases of sexual assault. This is something that Dr. Fraser Fellows said on, on numerous occasions. You, we've mentioned it a bunch of times. Let's just dive into exactly what I would say. I would say something to the effect of, you and I agree that sexual assault is one of the most heinous crimes in our entire society, that we need to do more to prevent it from happening, whether through safe walk programs, whether through better education so that people don't grow up with that, whether it's hopefully thrusting pornography out of society because porn fuels rape culture. Check on the bridgehead for more on that. Uh, we need to do more to... Um, to punish the perpetrators of those crimes, we need to do more to support people. We're on the same page. We need to address this problem. Imagine that a mother with born children, um, a two-year-old and a four-year-old, imagine her husband lost his job, became an alcoholic, and became incredibly abusive. And so over the span of maybe a year, she is living in absolute hell this traumatic, traumatic relationship. What do we do when we find out? We try to get her and her kids out, right? After that, though, if she is constantly being reminded of that traumatic experience because those kids no longer remind her of a loving, healthy relationship, would we ever suggest killing her born children to help her cope with the reminder of that trauma? If not born children, if we're not willing to kill born children because they remind a mother very potently, very directly about that trauma, why are we willing to kill pre-born children because of that? I don't know if there's anything that you would do differently there, Blaze, or add in. Um, no, I think that's but, I think that's great. That's a great concrete example of how to be able to address that. Gotcha. So if, if you were to take on that last one, then maternal mortality. Somebody says to you on a street corner, I think abortion should be allowed because women die if there isn't legal abortion. What would kind of your, whether it's a cookie cutter response or your standard response be on a street corner? Yeah, so I'll, I'll give a two-layered response. First of all, I know I shared all those stats earlier. That would not be my first go-to. 
I would, I would not dive into it unless someone's fixated on that. So if, if somebody said something like that to me, I would say like, well, I agree that's a, that, that's a serious problem. If, uh, if mothers are dying, we should be doing everything that we can to try and reduce those maternal deaths. Is abortion ever safe for the child? And then I would bring it back to the photo, right? And I find that, that eight, nine times out of 10, uh, if not more, that will refocus the conversation on what is important. Now, if someone digs in a little bit and says, yeah, but in countries where abortion is banned, uh, you know, far more women die from childbirth and, and, and pregnancy, then I would go a layer deeper and share just a little bit about the maternal mortality. And, and I would say, well, I agree that's, uh, that's a serious problem. Um, however, we have, to, we have to compare apples to apples here. And when you look at countries like Ireland, when abortion was totally illegal, or Poland, where abortion is almost entirely illegal, they actually have a lower maternal mortality rate than countries like Canada or the U.S., where abortion is widely available. Right? Clearly, it can't be the legal status of abortion that saves women's lives. You know, it's, it's proper medical care that saves women's lives. However, uh, then I bring it back to the child. You know, however, is abortion ever safe for the child? Or, you know, however, every successful abortion kills an innocent human being. Is that ever okay? Right, so I, I just share a little bit of the stats. Compare some uh, some countries with illegal abortion, low maternal mortality, to quickly illustrate the point and bring it back to the child. Um, if I can throw one other thing in here, Doctor Fellows was um, focused on viability a lot. It, it came up a little bit about premature birth and about um, you know he said like once a child is born, um, that's when they should get human rights and that sort of thing. Even if they're born prematurely, that's how he justified his line around 24 weeks. And, you know, some quick concrete ways uh, that, that I respond to that. One, one, one clarifying question I love to ask is um, take a child at 30 weeks or rather take two children at 30 weeks. Uh, one is still in the womb and one has been born and is in an incubator. Are you saying that one should have human rights and the other shouldn't? And it's a fantastic clarifying question because they're at the same developmental stage. So we can get at, is it the location that, 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 um, that the person I'm talking to cares about, or is it how developed the child is? But it, it's a really great clarifying question. It often gets people to stop and think. And the, uh, another quick concrete thing on, on viability back to the, uh, to, to come full circle back to the language, right? When, uh, Fraser, uh, D Dr. Fellows is talking about, you know, live births and fetal deaths and that sort of thing. Um, people often confuse viability, that is being able to survive, with vitality, being alive. You know, so I, 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 might, I might say to someone, um, viability tells us when a child can survive outside the womb. But wouldn't you agree that we can't ask the question, will they survive, unless we acknowledge they're already alive? Right? Another great little question to ask to help illustrate the point that people recognize and know that there is a living human being already if we're talking about their survival. So few few concrete questions I use in conversation all the time. Yeah, love it. And and I know that we <laughs> we could go on all day for, for things that we can throw in there. I, I think about um, lots of other factors that can go in there regarding, I mean, Michael was talking about, well, why? 
why aren't they there? Age-based discrimination. They talked about personhood, that sort of thing. There's a ton more blaze we could cover right now, um, but we're going to leave that to some of the commentary that Micah Rosendahl put in her blog article. We'll have that in the show notes. Um, Thank you very, very much for coming on the show, Blaze. At, at short notice, you are a gentleman and a scholar. I appreciate you being in here and giving some, some thoughts on this. And for those tuning in, if this is your first episode, please, please do check out our other content, Pro-Life Guys. Um, you can find us at prolifeguys.com. You can find us on all of your favorite um, podcast catchers. You can find us on YouTube. You can also find out other content that we're doing. We're doing a series called Humans of the Pro-Life Movement, where we feature um, often the unsung heroes of the pro-life movement, people who are um, dedicating their time and energy towards protecting pre-born children, having compelling conversations, changing minds, saving lives. We also do a show called The Pulse, where once a month we round up all of the interesting and important pro-life news from around the world and and we tell it from a pro-life perspective because for too long we've had the narrative come only from our state-funded pro-abortion uh, media sources and and it's exciting to be able to share this and share the information from hopefully somewhat of a non-biased but i'm um, kind of telling the pro-life story on some of these stories that are coming out from around the world for those of you who want to keep building up the program, I want to invite you to check out our Patreon page so that you can help us continue getting good quality guests coming on. We've got some incredibly exciting guests coming up here um, that I won't spoil too much, but look forward to them in the next couple of weeks. And I hope that you are able to tune in again soon, check out our past content, continue checking out the current content and ongoing content. Any, any final words from you, Blaze? Just thanks so much for having me. I love the show and happy to be back on it. Great stuff. Well, I hope each and every one of you have a wonderful rest of your day, however much is left before the sun goes down or comes up again. And we hope that you tune in again soon. Thanks much and God bless you all. 